0: Good to be with you all. Our scripture reading this morning is from Philippians 2. It's going to be verses 1 through 11, which reads So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. And bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. This is God's word. Pray with me, Lord, Let the meditations of our hearts and the words of my mouth be acceptable in your sight. You are our rock and our redeemer, and we are so grateful every day. We're grateful today for that powerful truth. We pray in Jesus' name. I've said in uh, a number of ways and a number of times in connection with this book, and even before we got into the study of the book of Philippians, that relationships... Okay? Relationships are the weightiest and most important element of what it means to be human. Now, that's a, that's a big statement, I understand. Uh, and, but this is because our God, the God that we worship, the God that we serve, the God who made us, is relational. We see this in the dynamic of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's core to the attributes the character of God that God is relational and we being made in the image of God then are relational people. It's part of what makes us who we are and, and just before we even get into all the sub parts of that just to state one of the most incredible things one of the greatest miracles in the world is that God comes to us in Christ to secure a relationship with us. So so if you're new to this whole thing, to this Christianity thing or you're just exploring or maybe you're coming back or thinking about coming back, that's the that's the critical point that you need that that God in Christ is securing a relationship with us and and the remarkable thing about that is he's bringing us into the relational dynamic of the Trinity, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, which is which is the most glorious, most wonderful, greatest relationship that there ever could be. And in Christ, we're brought into that. So, so whatever we say today, whatever we do, you know, it's all ultimately circling around that reality. And I encourage you, uh, if you have questions about it, to continue to, to grasp and pursue and to read your Bible and to talk to people about it. That's the core. It's relationship with God. So that, that relational dynamic which is present in us because we're made in the image of God is reflected all throughout our society, all throughout the world. Just look around you. Look at what people value. Look at pe- how people organize their lives. Look at what people create. Look at the stories that people tell. And you will see over and over again the power, the preeminence of relationship in our world. There's little more wonderful than a right relationship. And there's little more painful than a broken one. Relationships are paramount. And this is true not only in the larger society, but in the church as well. And when Paul is writing to the Philippians, he is writing to them about relationships, to encourage them in their relationships. And what he calls it is, is partnership, partnership in the gospel, the sort of the sweetest kind of relationship is relationship that's focused in a direction. And partnership in the gospel, in the Philippian church, is the, is the central, centralizing force of their relationships. And they're having, Paul's writing to them this letter because they're having a hard time. They're having a hard time. There's this outside pressure which is bearing down upon them in the form of persecution. You see, the town of Philippi was a kind of a retirement mecca for Roman soldiers. So they would they would all gather there, and so um, you know it was characteristic of Roman soldiers to have a very uh, strong allegiance to the emperor. In fact, they viewed their devotion to the emperor in religious terms, not metaphorically, but actually, the emperor was a kind of a god. And so here's this little Philippian church, and instead of being devoted to the emperor, they're devoted to Jesus Christ, and so they're this non-conforming community right in the middle. And they're, 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 the, the soldiers are frustrated because they're not towing the line. They're not following through. They want to stamp it out. So this little poor church is under distress. It's, you know, and you know how relationships get when people are under stress. I've been watching this television show that I just discovered called Great Designs. And it's about these couples who will decide to build a house and they're oftentimes, you know, Taking risks with everything that they have. Um, and inevitably, every almost in every episode, there will be a moment where they talk about the toll that the stress has taken on their relationship. And even sometimes the fear that, that it could be, you know, completely destructive to the relationship. When, pe- when we as human beings are put under pressure, our relationships oftentimes are stressed, and that's what's happening in Philippi. And in fact, we're going to learn later on that the two there are two leaders in the Philippian church who are, who, uh, are disagreeing. Paul says their names are Eudea and Syntyche, and so Paul's writing this letter to share some thoughts about partnering together well. Uh, lessons for them and lessons for us in our relationships. And interestingly. I find uh, this interesting. We don't actually find out what happens in Philippi. One of the sad sad realities of this fallen and broken world is that sometimes things don't work out. And so even we have the story of Paul himself, who is the writer of the the letter to the Philippians. We have this story where he had this moment where he and Barnabas, one of his co-workers disagreed on whether to take another partner in the gospel, a younger leader, his name was John Mark, with them on what's called the second missionary journey. This is back in Acts 15. And Paul felt that John Mark's previous desertion of his post made him a liability on this new journey that they were going on. But Barnabas thought otherwise, and they parted ways. So the reality is that in this life, even it's true for the Apostle Paul, will not always succeed. But the reality also for us, especially for those of us who are Christians, is that we must always try. We must always try. And Paul in this letter is giving us a kind of a handbook of essentials for partnership. And when you distill it all down, and this passage that we're looking at today is sort of the, the main focal point of the book, it's, it's the centerpiece. When you distill it all down, and that's what our passage does today, there's just one primary essential, and that is uh, if you're eager to maintain the bond of unity, there's one thing to focus on, and you've heard it when I read the te- text, that one thing is humility, Humility. So I want to do four things in relation to this one thing, humility, today. I want to define humility. I want to tell you how to get it. Not that I have mastered that by any stretch, but I want to speak to you about what Paul says about how to get it. And then I want to show you how to recognize when you've lost it. And then lastly, to encourage you to be hopeful about recovering it. Because that's so much the journey of life is to find and lose and recover this relational place with God and with others that is so incredibly important. So let's begin by defining humility. Some of you may remember that I preached on this exact text um, two months ago in December when uh, we were going through a series called Transforming Glory. So how could I be preaching on this text again? Well, a couple of reasons. Apart from the fact. That the previous sermon um, uh, is was what encouraged me to even take on the book of Philippians in this current series that we're in. And apart from the fact that this passage is a centerpiece of the book, so we can't skip it. We've got to take it in the flow of our study of the book of Philippians. Uh, the real reason is this, is because humility is such a vast and mysterious subject. It's such a vast, mysterious. And mysterious subject, that there's there's really no limit to how many sermons could be given on the subject of humility. I love what C.S. Lewis uh, says uh, about humility. Um, he says, "I wish I had got a bit further with humility myself. Um, if I had, I could probably tell you more about the relief, the comfort." of taking the fancy dress off, getting rid of the false self with all its look at me and aren't I a good boy and all its posing and posturing to get even near it, that is humility, even for a moment, is like a drink of cold water to a man in a desert. You see these kinds of quotes uh, among all of the Christians that we look back, had in the past and think, wow, there's a real, you know, somebody that I want to emulate. They all say these kinds of things about humility, that it's wonderful, that it's mysterious on some level, that it's central to our Christian faith at the very center of the virtues. They all make these incredible statements. And Paul in this passage helps us to define it. And sometimes, you know, how people define things. They define them by showing us what it's not. And and so that's part of what Paul, de, Paul does to define humility in this passage. Look with me in verse 3. Verse 3 says, Do nothing from rivalry, and another way to translate that word is selfish ambition or conceit. And another way to translate that word would be empty pride or, or something of that nature. Do nothing from rivalry or selfish ambition or conceit, empty pride. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. And so Paul is using those two terms, rivalry and conceit, to, to tell us what humility is not. So let's think about that for a second. The first one, uh, rivalry, or I love the translation selfish ambition, which is some versions use that. Um, to me, that sort of pops in my mind a little bit more. Really what that's about is, is, is it has to do with wanting more in relation to others. So the second one, conceit, has to do with thinking of yourself more in relation to others. The first one has to do with wanting more. That's what selfish ambition is. It's about aligning your life around the pursuit of things that will benefit and bless you. Whether that's recognition or title or opportunity or success. And the the list is unlimited. Could we take everything that we have and say of it? Here's the test, and and this is where we see where humility oftentimes cuts quickly, so deeply in the heart. Could we take everything that we have and say of it, I wish that others had it instead of me? Could we take everything we have and say, I wish that others, could our ambition go from, from selfish getting to selfless giving? That's what humility entails, according to Paul. Second word, conceit, has to do with thinking. It's thinking more of yourself in relation to others. So wanting more in relation to others and thinking of yourself more in relation to others. It's almost like the doing and the being element, which we see all throughout Scripture. The conceit side would would say something like, I'm more important. I'm the boss. I'm the more worthy. I'm more talented. I'm smarter. Or to put it in a lot of the conversations we have, I, we, you know, we can take anything and turn it into a reason for pride. I'm white or I'm not white. I'm male or I'm not male. It really, anything can become that place where we seek pride. And then what we do with it is we go, uh, we say, therefore, I deserve more what you do not deserve as much. So because of who I am, I deserve more what you do not deserve as much. Again, humility cuts quickly and deeply into the soul and divides kind of our motives and the way that we're thinking about how we move through life, especially with our relationships. So in contrast to those two terms, selfish ambition, rivalry, and conceit or empty pride, in contrast, humility is reckoning others to be of more value than yourself, now, is Paul saying that in every case, the other person is more valuable than the person, I don't know how you do this, who happens to be thinking at this moment, right? The, the math doesn't quite work if you take that in an extremely literal way. What he's saying, though, is this, is that we ought to take the posture of wanting more and thinking more of the person next to us. Humility is, and the, here's, here's the definition. Now, I think, you know, it, when I preached on this text um, A few weeks ago, I was giving almost more of a topical sermon. Here here in this one, it's a little bit more expository. I'm coming right out of the text. So in this text, if you're to find humility from this text, uh, you could say something like this, using verse 3. Humility is an inclination to lose your own wants and merits... Okay, what, what, makes, what could make you have a, a, a high self-regard or self-estimation, humility is an inclination to lose your own wants and merits so that there will be space for others. Humility is an inclination to lose your own wants and merits so that there will be space for others. And we're going to see that humility is really the prerequisite to partnership. Um, one of our elders, Ang Lip, uh, was looking this over and he sent me this wonderful quote by John Newton. Now, John Newton wrote amazing grace. So one of our heroes in the faith, he was a a slave trader who came to meet Jesus and, and gave up the slave trade and, and dedicated the rest of his life to Jesus Christ. And, you know, was racked with guilt, um, throughout his life for, for how he had spent the earlier part of his life. Um, and so uh, he, he's an incredible person, and, and it was out of that that we, we got this amazing hymn, probably the most famous hymn in the world, right? Amazing Grace. It was out of the story of John Newton's, you know, movement from being a slave trader to finding Christ, to repenting of it all, and to, and to coming to experience grace. And so he'd been on this incredible journey of humility, in a sense. And here's what John Newton says. He says, whoever is truly humbled will not be easily angry, nor harsh, or critical of others he will be compassionate and tender to the infirmities of his fellow sinners knowing that, that if there is a difference it is grace alone which has made it he knows that he has the seeds of every evil in his own heart and all the trials and afflictions he will look to the hand of the lord and lay his mouth in the dust acknowledging that he suffers much less than his iniquities have deserved Or if you want to just go straight to the source in this task of defining humility, I encourage you to turn your gaze upon Jesus Christ. And that's what Paul does in the second part of the passage that we looked at. Think about just any part of the life of Jesus, but especially think about the incarnation where, you know, he took on human form to be found in a manger, All the vulnerability associated with that, right? He did not, he did not view um, his divinity as a privilege to be grasped, a merit to be held onto at the loss of others. But Jesus relinquished it. He released it. That's what, that's what the emptying is. He released it so that he could take on human form, experience all the kinds of suffering and frailty that we talk about. Miguel mentioned that earlier. Um, Jesus willingly embraced it all. That's what the incarnation is. It is the quintessential humbling. No human has ever humbled in the way that Jesus humbled himself in the incarnation. And then, of course, it's in the atonement. In the incarnation and in the atonement. He was willing to assume the lowest, and i don 't know that we fully understand this. We take a cross and we hang it around our neck as if it 's like a wonderful piece of jewelry, but the cross in Jesus' day represented the absolute lowest place that was possible in society. It was death of a criminal, but it was death of a, of a criminal who who was not a Roman citizen, and so they were put to death in the the worst possible way. they were to be on the cross was to be at the lowest point that you could find in Roman society and that's where Jesus allowed himself to be taken for the sake of us so defining humility is the first step and that's a provisional kind of a partial definition Um, it's been one of the joys and pursuits of my life to to work at understanding the doctrine the theology of humility and I know that Coming out of verse 3 here, we've got a part of it, but it is so rich. Um, So that's a partial definition. The question I want to jump to next is, how do we get it? How do we get humility? Now, there's many answers, uh, but I want to focus on this particular aspect that comes out of this text. That's evident in our text. You have to assume that this is not the first time the Philippian church has heard about humility. Humility. And it's wonderful power to facilitate partnership and relationship. You have to assume it's not the first time. Even so, Paul felt the need and, and to remind them. And, and the more you sit with this book, the more you understand that it all hangs together on that hymn of Christ. And the humbling of Christ. And the call for those of us in Christ to humble ourselves. It all hangs together. Just about every verse in the book can be seen in light of that hymn of Christ and the call to humility. And so why is it that Paul is reminding them, of this important truth. They probably already knew about the subject of humility. They knew about the doctrine of the theology. The virtue of humility. But Paul finds it necessary to write to them this letter. Which in, in today's terms would have been a fairly significant letter. In the New Testament it's not that long. But this is a very, fairly significant letter. To remind them. To call them back to humility. And the reason he does that is because this is part of the dynamic of humility. And the human condition. You can have it and then you can lose it. That's the thing about humility. You can have it and then you can lose it, and it can happen very easily and in a very short amount of time. And so we need continuously to be reminded to be called back to the virtue, the central virtue of Humility. Remaining in the place of humility requires all kinds of reminding. The primary stumbling block is in our hearts. It's a tendency of us to veer away from self-forgetfulness and into self-centeredness. It's as if our hearts were just bent in that direction. And so the struggle with humility isn't merely just definitional. Like if you just understand what it is. It's sort of staying with it day in and day out. I used to play the guitar a lot. One of my degrees was in guitar. And so I spent a lot of time with the guitar. I say used to because I, I hardly pick it up anymore. But I can still tell you a few things about the guitar. Um, so for example, uh, on the guitar, there is an A string, right? The, the fifth one. And if you were to pick up a guitar, I could tell you where that string is. And you would say, uh, okay. And I could probably tell you a couple times and from then on you'd know where it is. However, every 24 hours or at least, oftentimes much less, that A string and all the other strings goes out of tune. It gets out of tune. And it has to be brought back into proper tension so that it resonates at what we call A440, 440 hertz. That's, the de- that's what the proper A is, pretty much accepted throughout the world. We call that pitch standard. Right? If you're tuning to pitch standard, you're tuning your A to 440. And in the same way, um, because of sin, because of the inclination of the heart, uh, our hearts tend to move out of humility. We move out of A440. We move, and and, and sometimes when the pressure is on us, it happens even faster. I was looking at Miguel this morning, and because the sun's beating down and he's using um, uh, an acoustic guitar, right? the, The body is warming up and it's changing the dynamics, the pressure and the heat of the sun changing the dynamics. And so he has to tune in between songs, which is what he was doing to get it back because it goes out of tune faster when the heat is coming down and there's pressure. And the same way in this journey with humility, we gravitate away from humility and towards self. So we need this constant tuning so that we can be in harmony, right? That's what the book of Philippians is about. Harmony with God and with others. And when you play an instrument, what happens, like the guitar, you, you become increasingly sensitive to uh, when the strings are out of tune. I notice this by myself. Since I don't play the guitar anymore, I can't, when I try to tune a guitar, it's much more difficult for me than it used to be. I used to be able to just you know, quickly tune a guitar, and now I'm struggling. Is that in? Is that right? Because I've lost some sensitivity. Well, Paul's writing to the Philippian church to, to call them to greater sensitivity around the subject, the virtue of Humility. To call them to learn, to listen better, to, to hear when their hearts are out of tune with the call to humility. Humility is the prerequisite to addressing the issues of disagreement. And therefore, Paul knows that by calling them to increase their sensitivity around it, he will be calling them and facilitating greater unity among them. So, how do you know when you 're out of tune so i want to I want you to see in the book of Philippians, and I hope that as we 're going through this book you 're sort of falling in love with it a little bit. I want to encourage you to read it 's not that long. you could read it in the evening before bed there 's something that happens when you read a book over and over again. you start to see connections, especially as we 're we 're studying it and we 're really drilling into what the the main message is and the thread. Um, And there's a couple of ways that Paul teaches through this book. And this sort of popped for me this week in a new way um, that I hadn't expected. Now, we, we know that Paul teaches, and this is true of Paul in most of his letters. We know that he teaches by direct statement. He says, you know, humility is not rivalry or conceit. So that's a direct statement to us. He's teaching us clearly with words. But there's another way that Paul teaches He communicates through modeling. And this is what you see so often in the beginnings of his letters and his prayers um, and the way he interacts with people. So you can teach through direct statement, but you can also teach through modeling. And I have to tell you, the more I sit with the book of Philippians, the more I see that Paul here in his life is giving a masterclass on the subject of humility. So we have to look at both what he says and What he does to really understand what he wants us to know and to emulate. So when he greets them with this exuberant joy, that's all part of his teaching on humility. When he affirms them, which he does in the very beginning of the, the letter with, with this incredible prayer, that's part of his teaching on humility. When he thanks God for them, it's part of his teaching on humility. When he takes no confidence in his own achievements, right? later on in the book, he's going to talk about how, well, actually I am this and I am this and I am this, but I take no, I take no confidence in that. My only confidence is in the grace of Christ on my life. He doesn't come at them from above. He comes, at, he comes to them from alongside. This incredible tone that Paul has in the book of Philippians. Even though he's the great apostle Paul. He comes to them alongside. And when you when you sort of look at his direct teaching in the book of Philippians, and then you look at the way he models his relationship to the Philippian church, you come up with a number of different ways, a fuller picture of what it looks like to, to be in or out of humility. And that's what I want to play with together a little bit. Because... We need to understand when we're out of tune, when we're losing humility, when we're, when there's disharmony because we're losing that connection um, with Jesus that is so evident in this hymn, which describes his life. So here's some signs that come from the text that, that maybe we're out of tune, or if you prefer, they're like um, warning lights on the dashboard that you can look for that begin to blink maybe when you're a little bit out of tune. And I'm just pulling these from really the whole book of Philippians. So here we go. And, and if, you're, if you're online, you're going you're gonna to be able to see the list. Um, if not, we'll, we can get you the list or you can, you can pull it up um, if you want to open it up. Just the sound will be weird. But okay, here's the list. Here's what you know when you're out of tune, like right? When you're, you're playing and it's just not sounding right. And you need to tune in to humility. Uh, the first one is the absence of joy. 16 times in the book of Philippians. Paul talks about joy and rejoicing. And we've we've used that as the theme of this book. Joy spring. When you descend into this, this relationship with the Lord that's characterized by humility, there is a kind of a joy that springs forth. And that's what we're calling our study in the book of Philippians. Joy spring. An inability to encourage and affirm the people around us. Note Paul's effusive affirmations throughout the first part of this scripture. Of the Philippian church. An absence of gratitude or an inability to be thankful. Selfish ambition. See, it always wants more and it's never satisfied with what it has. So an absence of gratitude is part of that selfish ambition thing, which is the opposite of humility. An excessive combativeness or an excessive stubbornness, which is the opposite of the like-mindedness that Paul talks of. A drivenness for self or the wants of self. Uh, Again, coming out of that selfish ambition, there's, you know, we've all experienced this. There can come a moment when there's just almost like this intensity. I've got to have what I want. I've got to have what I want. And there's a drivenness to it. And that, my friends, is a warning sign that we're moving out of the place of humility. A tendency to look down on others or to belittle others. This comes out of that word conceit. You don't see uh, the Apostle Paul, as I said, uh, approaching the Philippians in that way at all. A judgmentalism, uh, which is the fruit of conceit. If you think that you are better, if I think that I am better than someone, then the fruit of that thought will be judgment. Why aren't you doing what I do? Why aren't you living in the way that I'm living? And then lastly, the inability to give grace. One of the things that blows me away, and I think Paul puts this in here because he really wants to model this for us, is how there are these these other Christian leaders around Paul who are trying to do him harm while he's locked away in prison. Remember, he's in prison. He's in the place of humility. They're trying to do him harm while he's locked away in prison. And his response is grace. Paul simply says, what then of these other leaders? As long as... Jesus is being proclaimed. What does it hurt me? Incredible humility, incredible grace, signs of humility. All right, so this is intense stuff. So if if any of those are true of you, I just want to say welcome to the club. Welcome to the club. Because um, this is part of what it means to be a human being. Um, We veer in, we're bent towards that self-focus, that pride, Um, So welcome to the club. This isn't meant to be, uh, you know, uh, an identification of you. Uh, You know, this is the scripture, you know, doing the work that it does, which is to cut deep. Because, because God has a vision for our lives that's much more beautiful and more wonderful than the vision of selfishness, self-focus, self-will, self self Ish ambition. All of the selves. God has a vision for us that's so much better. And it's, it's good for us to know when we're out of tune. I am just, I can't believe how much I need to go back to this doctrine of humility daily because it's so quick. The sun beats down and I'm out of tune. But God has something more, something better, something sweeter. What C.S. Lewis calls in the quote that I shared with you at the very beginning, It's like a cool drink of water to a man in a desert. Which brings us to the last part. How do we recover humility in Christ? How do we recover humility in Christ? When your guitar is out of tune, um, you have to bring the, the string back into tune. And almost all of us need something to tell us to show us what A440 is to get it in the right tune there are very few number of people in the world maybe less than 1 in 10,000 have the ability to actually remember what A440 is without any side, any outside help the rest of us that's called perfect pitch the rest of us have what's called relative pitch and and so we need something we need something to remind us to to, to to be the standard by which we tune our guitar. And I would say, because of sin, there isn't a human in the being human being in the world who in relation to humility has perfect pitch. We all need something. We need that that tuner. So, you will find guitarists and other instrumentalists who, who play uh, stringed instruments. They have this thing called a tuning fork. And uh, I seem to have lost mine. I tried to find it this morning. Um, it's a U shape. We've talked about U shape, right? So, that's really cool. But uh, the U shape journey of Jesus down and then back up again. A tuning fork is a little U shaped piece of metal. And when you bang it on something, it resonates at A440. And you can put it on a guitar and it resonates. And so, you can tune your guitar. To the tuning pitch. We all need a tuning pitch. And the same goes with humility. We need something to tune to. And Paul is giving us in this chapter. The tuning fork. For every single one of us. And it's the life and the character of Jesus Christ. It's that, that exaltation that comes after his embracing of his humanity, his going to the, the incarnation, to the death, to the exaltation. It's shorthand really for all of the life of Christ. You can take a snapshot anywhere in the, any point along the journey of Jesus' life and you can use that as your pitch standard. This happens to me so much is, is I, I, I'm in prayer and I'm saying, what does humility look like in this particular moment? And a picture of Jesus somewhere along the beautiful line of his earthly life will come into my mind. And for the rest of the day, that will be what I, that'll be what I hold on to. For, that's my snapshot that I need for humility in that day. You could pick all different kinds of ones. Let me just throw a few out there. I got my list here that you could think about, but the, the list is endless. Um, John says, you know, the, if, if all the things that Jesus did were recorded, the books of the earth couldn't hold them, right? So, so we've got an endless well of pictures to lead us into the embracing of humility. But for example, Jesus letting go of his heavenly privilege to take on human form. Jesus being vulnerable in the manger that one really ministered to me this week. Just picture Jesus Christ, okay? He's given up the privilege of divinity and now he's in a manger. Like what is more vulnerable than a baby? Right? Humility. Jesus touching the lepers. Nobody did that. Nobody did that. Jesus letting the children come to him. The disciples wanted to get them away. He's too important, right? Jesus is too important. Jesus says, no, I'm not too important. Jesus with the Samaritan woman. No, a Jewish man would not talk to the Samaritan woman, but especially not a rabbi, but Jesus, he breaks all those barriers in He's not not interested in his self-estimation. Well, I'm I'm the rabbi. I'm I'm Jesus, so I won't talk to the Samaritan woman. Jesus washing the disciples' feet. It's really hard to imagine something. I mean, mean, just washing dirty feet. I find it really challenging to lay my life against that picture and, and come up not wanting in some pretty massive ways. Lord, help me to be a foot washer. Jesus allowing himself to be captured in the garden. There's that moment when Peter pulls out his sword, cuts off the guy's ear. And Jesus is like, no, I could call down legions of angels, but this is God's will for me. So that sense of kind of allowing God's will to fulfill itself in his life, even though it's going to take him to hanging on the cross. The last one I'll call out. But again, there's so many Jesus hanging on the cross, the lowest place of all in Roman society. Every single snapshot of the life of Jesus is like a tuning fork. It's like a tuning fork by which we tune our lives in any given moment. What picture do you need today to move through your particular circumstances with humility? And it's not a one and done thing. This is a daily tuning and when the heat comes down and the instrument gets wonky because the wood is changing temperatures and it's bending differently you need to tune it all the more we can reach out this is the grace of Jesus Christ we can reach out at any moment and tune this is our need and you know in my journey with the what I've been calling the doctrine of humility, which because it's so central, it's the most central virtue of all. In my journey with the doctrine of humility, I have been deeply, deeply frustrated at its elusiveness at times in my life. Frustrated with myself for failing over and over again. But I've come to appreciate this one aspect. And that is, is that on some level... The elusiveness of humility is what holds me close to Jesus Christ on a daily basis. Because I so desperately need all those snapshots of Christ. I need the person of Christ. I need to be reminded of this incredible truth that we have in Christ. What does it say in verse five? Five, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. That's the hopeful piece. We have it in Christ Jesus. So let's go more to Christ Jesus and experience his grace, his grace with us when we fail and his grace to, to bring us into the place to tune us so that we can be in harmony with him and in partnership with others. That desperate need is a good thing. The fact that I need it, that you need it every day is a good thing. It's what keeps you close To Jesus. To the relationship. Which is the core element of what it means to be human. So God thank you. Thank you that you don't give us all things at once. That that there's a journey that involves us. Sinking. As you sank from heaven to earth. We sink into our frustrations. Our brokenness the consequences of our sin only to find that you you stand there in tremendous grace welcoming us again and offering us a fresh start taking our shame our humility transforming it through your exaltation it's a mysterious journey but it is the right and the good and the true journey, and we partner with you along it. Help us to do that all the more, we ask in Jesus' name.